Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you are holy. Your word is holy. You're perfect. Your word is perfect. Lord, give us a tent of ears, humble hearts, and thinking minds. May I speak what is in line with your word and not straight to the left or to the right. Stay close and near to your text. Lord, build your church and save sinners. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. September 11th, 2001. Seems like just yesterday. So it's crazy to think that that's been 21 years ago. I was in high school, still young and knew nothing about the world. I remember seeing the horrific events in my classes. The teachers had the news on in class, so we didn't get much done that day. Up to that point in my life, that was the scariest day of my life. My life changed on that day, as all of us. But for a 15-year-old to see this, it was an unveiling of the evil of this world. This world was no longer, in my naive mind, a safe place. It was a scary day for all of us. One good memory from that day was later on that night. The president addressed the nation from the Oval Office. He had a break from regularly scheduled programming into the screen of the presidential seal. And then the president, President Bush, opens with, good evening. He explains the tragic events that had happened, but then talks about Americans stepping up and helping. He tells Americans that the American people will be strong and that his administration will work hard to make sure we recover. And they find out who are those who are responsible for the brutal attacks. And he closed with, good night and God bless America. For a 15-year-old like me at the time, and for many of us, it was comforting to hear your nation's leader. Now imagine if the president was not there that night. Say the, the vice president, Vice President Cheney, was the one addressing the nation. He's very capable of doing that. But if that had happened, you know, something went terribly wrong. Where's the president? Why is he not addressing the nation? I'm sure the the vice president can say the same exact words, but he's not the president. If that had happened, that would have been quite quite unsettling for us on that scary day. Why? Because it's the president's job, his role to address the nation. It's his role. It's not saying the vice president's incapable. It's just not his role. The president of the United States has to lead. Well, we understand governmental roles from a national standpoint, but do we understand roles within the church? It's not offensive for us to understand the role of the president and the vice president, for, but for men and women to have distinct roles 
in the church and in the family, everybody loses their minds. But listen, the Bible is clear that men and women are both image bearers of God, and if they know Jesus, they are co-heirs with Christ. They are also distinct and have distinct roles in the church and in the family. It's not a matter of ability or value. It's about order. This morning we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 2, looking at verses 8 through 15. Now Paul here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as an apostle, one with the, the authority of Christ here, in verses 8 through 15, addresses the congregational order in terms of men and women roles. This morning we'll see that the corporate, in the corporate gathering of the church, men are to lead. Secondly, women are to model humility and self-control. And then we'll see how this plays out in the church. But first, in the corporate gathering, men are to lead through prayer and teaching. Look at verses 8 and 12 of chapter 2. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now skip down to verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. In the previous passage, Paul addresses what the church, as it gathers, should prioritize in prayer. Now he begins a section on who is to lead in the church and what roles men and women have in this gathering. And it's important to remember in this context, it is the context of the gathered church. When we gather as a body on Sunday mornings for the reading, the preaching, the singing, and the seeing of the word, baptism and Lord's Supper, this gathering is the essential element of the church. All other things that we do, Sunday school, K-groups, fellowships, etc., are great things. But the Sunday gathering is essential to be a church. We don't have to have the extracurriculars. We have to gather as a body. If you remember from a few weeks ago, a broad definition of a local church is an assembly of baptized Christians who regularly gather in Christ's name to preach the gospel, observe the ordinances, baptism and Lord's Supper, and to affirm and oversee one another's relationship to Christ. And the corporate gathering is the primary means by which this happens. Now, how does all this work out? What does, who does what? Well, as we see in verse 18, we see that Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, urges men to step up and lead in the gathering. He tells them that they should be the ones to lead the congregation in prayer. Now, this is not specific to the church in Ephesus. No, he says that in every place, in every church, in every church, in every culture, in every church, in every generation— However, there are some qualifications to the prayers. He says, lifting holy hands without quarreling in anger. Well, the point is not that they literally lift their hands, although they have the freedom to do that. 
No, the point is a reference back to the biblical significance of clean hands in the Old Testament. It symbolizes a pure, the purity of, of heart. The washing of hands symbolized the, the remo- not the removal of bacteria, but of purity. This is not saying that sinless men are the only ones that can pray, for that would disqualify all of us men. Now it goes back to unrepentant sin, walking daily in sin of which you have no shame. And Paul here specifies quarreling and anger, sins of which destroy unity in the body, unity in the church. He had just called us to a peaceful and quiet life in the previous passage. So nothing that would destroy the unity of the church. So all this would also imply that all men are to be reconciled to their brother or sister in Christ before they stand before the congregation and pray to God on the church's behalf. Now, as you see, the rest of this passage speaks to the women of the church. Before we get to that, we can see by implication something in verse 12. Look at verse 12 again. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, before we go on to unpack this, I want us to notice several, notice the several passages we've gone over over the past few weeks in 1 Timothy. No mention has been made of the office of elders, overseers, or pastors. A church can still function as a church without the offices, without the office of elders or pastors. But just like a house can still be a house without doors and a roof, doors and roof are still of vital importance to a house. I don't want to live very long in a house without doors and a roof. But to constitute a church, there has to be the functions of what overseers of the church do, which are teaching and authority. There has to be the teaching of the word, the gospel, to be a church. And the teaching of the congregation is an authoritative action. As a matter of fact, Paul structures the sentence to tie the two together, teaching and having authority. Now, they may not have recognized officers yet, but the actions are already happening. So who in the church are supposed to teach and have authority over the congregation? Men. Now, hold on, it's not all men. And as we'll see next week, there are qualifications that must be met for someone to lead in this capacity. But it is clear in this passage that it's only for men. Now, I know in today's climate, that is a controversial statement. Any statement of exclusivity or distinction is like nails on the chalkboard to modern Western ears. But modern Western values are not universal or even correct. Of course, Scripture transcends all cultures and is an offense everywhere you go. And listen, we make no apologies for what the Bible says. God is right in all that he says. We are the ones who must conform. Now, there'll be more on this section of this passage a little later in reference to women's roles. Now, this section is not a dig at women or saying women teaching men is necessarily their fault. It's also not saying that women are not to teach at all in certain contexts. 
There'll be more than that a little bit shortly. But Paul starts this section with an exhortation to men. It's not like women were necessarily taking control and fighting men. No, no, men can be passive. Men have a tendency to shy away from their calling to lead their families and in their church. And leadership and teaching is going to happen. No matter where you are, someone's going to fill that void. But the onus is not on women to step down, but it's for men to step up and lead. You spend much time in churches, and many of you have been part of multiple churches in your life. You start to observe it's it's almost like pulling teeth to get men to to commit to something, to Bible studies, to leadership roles, etc. But you get women involved, and they have something going on next week. Now, I know that's a generalization, but some of us have observed that. I'm glad the ladies of the church do this. And that's, that's not the question. The question is, why is it so hard to get men to lead and commit? To be readers and to be teachers. So men, what are you going to do? Godly men are to lead in the organization of the church. Well, how so? Well, first of all, through prayer through reconciliation, through leading your family, through various teaching and uh, leading avenues. And we're not talking about the calling to be an elder or vocational ministry. We'll look into that next week. No, men leading the church, leading their families. This is your calling. And God has equipped you for this calling. And he will be the one who strengthened you. You, men, are to lead the church through prayer and teaching. Okay, so what are women to do? As we see in verses 9 through 15, in the corporate gathering, women are to model quiet self-control. Look at verses 9 through 15 again. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, the largest chunk of this passage is speaking to the congregation about what women are to do. And what is that? Well, we first see that their appearance is to be marked by modesty. Now, please note that this passage is referring to a woman's honor. In this culture, and also ours to an extent, we prioritize appearances. And in this culture, first century Ephesus, you want to appear rich. You want to dress to the nines. You don't want to look look poor, look like one who has a laborer's job, who's outside all day, every day. You want to look like royalty, someone with nicely put together hair, gold rings, jewelry, purple dresses, the, the color of royalty. But this was not to be the priority of Christian women. 
No, he's not saying that Christian women should be raggedy. No, he's, he, the question is, what is the priority in life? Is it to look like royalty? Is it to have a clean and pristine house all the time? No, it is to be marked by godliness. That's what people are to notice. That's the appearance to, to be people to notice. Her Christ-like service to her family and her church is to be a model for the congregation. That's how women are to teach the congregation, not through oversight, but through godly living, through the demonstration of patience toward others, through sacrificial service, through kind words to the hurting, from, through nurture to the sick. This is the adornment of the Christian lady. This is the royal purple dress of the godly woman. And I hope every husband in here appreciates their wives and their example to us. And I hope single men, this is what you look for in a wife, that she's the the godliest woman, the godliest example of Christ-like service you've ever met. Now verses 11 through 15 speak to the congregational order. Women are neither to teach nor to have authority over men, but are to remain silent when the congregation gathers for the preached word. Now, let let me start with what this text does not say. It doesn't say women cannot teach. For Paul tells older women to teach younger women in Titus 2. Paul mentions in his second letter to Timothy about Timothy's mother and grandmother teaching Timothy as a boy. Acts 18 mentions Aquila and his wife Priscilla taking Apollos aside and giving him instruction. So women are not barred from teaching. The prohibition is against women teaching the congregation of men. Women can teach women, teach children. Wives can in many ways teach their husbands at home. They are not just not to teach a gathered group of men. You say, well, that, that's not fair. Well, many men are prohibited, prohibited from teaching the congregation as well. But this silence does not speak to a zipped lip at all times, not at all. It speaks to not leading a group of men in teaching. But when the congregation gathers, the sitting and learning. Now, we don't have time this morning to discuss every case study of how this is fleshed out in every, all the different ways. We can debate that amongst ourselves and depend on godly leadership in the church to lead in this decision-making. But you always ask, you should always ask, what is clear in Scripture, and what is the biblical pattern? It is clear that only men can teach in a mixed-gendered congregation or group. Well, now, maybe you say, well, this is just a cultural argument. This doesn't apply to today. This is only for the church in Ephesus at that time. Of course, anything different from this would be offensive to that patriarchal society of that day. Paul is just conceding to the cultural milieu of that day. Well, there's a problem to that argument. Where? Look at verses 13 through 14. He doesn't appeal to cultural sensitivities. He appeals to the Bible, to the creation account, and to the fall. Adam and Eve were created in God's image, both of them. 
Both of them are given dominion over the earth as God's representatives. Both had authority. However, in the authority, Adam, the man, was given as head in the co-regent relationship. Eve was not his child, but his co-leader, his helper, but he as the head. Adam, the president, Eve, the vice president. This is the way God ordered it. It is not a result of the fall. It is part of the order of God's very good creation. Okay, we we have that, but now something happened at the fall. Before the fall, Adam was given instruction from God. Here is all you can do. All you have the freedom to do. Here's only one thing you can't do. And Eve got this instruction from Adam as the head. But what does Satan, the serpent, do? He doesn't go to the head of the relationship. No, he reverses God's order. He goes to Eve. He deceives Eve, who then leads her husband. Of course, Adam was there the whole time and never steps in. Eve becomes a transgressor, a sinner, and Adam joins her in the sin, and now all mankind is lumped into sinful humanity. All this chaos, the reason why the world is the way it is, because of this subtle nudge. Satan just asked this innocent question, did God really say? Satan's deceptions are always subtle and seemingly harmless, but are devastating. Reversing God's order doesn't sound like a big deal, but it is. So the issue of who can lead in the church is not an issue we could just pass off as no big deal. It's a, it's a sensitive issue, no doubt, in today's culture. But we can't just stay on the sidelines. We must be clear what Scripture teaches with gentleness. Now, Verse 15 is interesting to say, interesting to passage, interesting text, to say the least. But it is connected, obviously, with what he just said. Look at verse 15 again. Yet she will be, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So what are you saying here, Paul? This, grammatically speaking and theologically speaking, is a complex statement. He says, she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. He goes from third-person singular to third-person plural. Okay. So she is a reference to Eve will be saved through childbearing. And they a reference to Christian women in general. So he's speaking of both parties, Eve and all women in Christ. So what does he mean by this statement? First, it is important to note that Paul is not referring to Eve or women being justified before God by bearing children. No, we're justified by faith alone and Christ alone. 
but it is a reference to deliverance, to sanctification, to perseverance, the keeping in the faith by God, her total salvation. And Eve's deception does not plunge women into nothingness or second-class citizenry. Eve and Christian women's role is an essential role in salvation history. Christian women play an irreplaceable part in the life and the function of the local church. But through childbearing for Eve, through faith, love, and holiness with self-control for women, well, does this eliminate single women? Does this eliminate married women who can't have children? What is, what's going on here? Well, it's important to note the, the remember, to remember that the childbearing aspect refers to Eve, the singular she, not women necessarily in general. If you remember in Genesis 3, after both Adam and Eve sinned and brought curse uh, to the world, God promised something. He promised a judgment and a blessing in Genesis 3.15. A judgment on the serpent, Satan, and a blessing to us. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This passage is often referred to as the Proto-Evangelium or first gospel, the first announcement of the gospel in the Bible. Through the, the, through the deceived Eve's offspring, notice Adam is not referenced here, salvation would come to the world through the Christ, Eve's offspring. The Savior of the world would come from Eve. She would give birth, of course, several thousands and generations later to her Savior. And through this Savior, through Eve's offspring, and only through him, would women be saved all people who come to faith in Christ be saved. And their lives, women in Christ, their lives will be marked by conformity to Christ in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So whether you are married, single, or widowed, that is you. Men aren't the only ones being transformed into the image of Christ, but women as well. And just because there are distinctions, just because there are roles, just because there is designated authority in the church, doesn't mean that only men will be saved, sanctified, and glorified. Now, all women who know Jesus are co-heirs with Christ, receiving all the benefits of being children of God. Their role in the church may be different, but their destiny is the same. A woman's role in the church is a model of godliness and self-control that is a display of God's glory. Just because it is not a teaching authority role over the congregation doesn't mean it's not just as important. Sisters, I'm constantly edified by God's grace from displayed through you. Your kindness and self-control is an example to us men. Your nurture of others is a display of God's nurture for his people. This is your calling. You are called to model Christ's likeness for the church through modesty, through gentleness, through humility, and love with self-control. To be spiritual mothers to women and children. 
This is your calling in the church, and don't dismiss it as unimportant. It is crucially important, and it is pleasing to God, our Savior. So what does this whole text, this whole passage teach us? That in the corporate assembly, the household of God, men are to lead in holiness through prayer and teaching, and women are to model holiness through quiet and gentle self-control. The men lead in holiness through prayer and teaching, and women model holiness through quiet and gentle self-control. So men, this week, think about your role here at the church and in home. You're to help lead in the church and lead in your home. Does that mean that you pray over the church and the service on Sundays? Yes, if, if asked. And if you get asked to pray the service, say yes and prepare your heart and your mind for the ta- task. But it's not just that. You, we lead in our family in prayer. And look at what the Scripture says here about anger and quarreling. You can't truly pray if you're harboring these things in your heart. Confess them before God. Reconcile with the one you've hurt, whether that's your wife, your children, or someone here. Lead with the Lord's guidance and strength and lead others in the faith. Women, this week, think about what you prioritize. Is it appearances? Confess that before God. Ask him to guide you in prioritizing things that bring Christ honor, that mirror him, patience, gentleness, modesty, and service. Look at all the great examples we have here at this church. Watch them. Imitate them as they imitate Christ. Be a spiritual mother to younger ladies. Whether you're a man or woman, the gospel of Christ is for you. He died and rose for us. He was penalized for our sin. We are lost without him and headed to eternal judgment. But for those who trust in Christ alone, they have forgiveness of sins. So have you ever trusted in Christ? Confess your sin today and believe that he died and rose for you and you will be saved today. Call on him today. Men, Christ loves you and he calls you to lead. Women, Christ loves you and calls you to quietly and gently serve him. And when we do this, when we understand our roles, the church functions as she should, and God gets all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Savior, may we heed your word. When it's an offense to us, Lord, let us repent. I know that we have offended you, but you've given grace to us. Help us to live and walk in your word, all to the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.